Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Enjoying the uh, Thanksgiving week and weekend and enjoying some great weather. Feeling good, my friend. Feeling good. Well, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. We are excited to be back with you on a beautiful Monday morning. I think they call this Cyber Monday. Anything big on the shopping list for you this year, Eric? Not a damn thing. You know, I, I got Lori and I both, you know, once the kids got older and moved out, um, we all kind of got over the gift giving phase. You know, we still share gifts a little bit over the holidays and in that. But for the most part, it's all about just uh, getting together and eating tons of food. Well, roll tight on that. Uh, today, we're going to get together and uh, let you chew on the AWA a little bit. All of a sudden, this is uh, something people want to hear about. And I've got to think that the WWE Network throwing up a hidden gem of maybe the most psychedelic wrestling that ever happened back in 1989 was produced. Uh, you and I were talking a little bit off air. Uh, tell me what you, uh, what you thought watching that back. Gosh, nearly 30 years uh, later. It was bizarro. You know, again, you know, you know, you and I have covered this, and I've said this so many times when we've done these types of shows. You know, going back on the WWE Network, and I, I found the you know Team Challenge series, the first one, and it was, it was mind-boggling. You know, because I had completely forgotten about it. It's been thirty years. There's so much has happened since that time, and and I hadn't seen it. And just to go back and see some of the talent that I'd quite honestly forgotten about, and you know, hasn't really been in the line in the in the light of day wrestling wise from you know most of them for many many years. Seeing those guys in action and just seeing the attempt by Vern Gagne and company to try to find a different way to present the product was really it was mind blowing. It was really a trip. You know, I did a watch along on Patreon and just I had a blast doing it. You know, just like I said, I hadn't seen it. It's like stepping back in time. Well, let's step back in time all the way to the beginning. Uh, I assume growing up where you did that you grew up a fan of the AWA or you were at least aware of it. Tell me about some of your first AWA memories when you were just a fan. Yeah. You know, my family and I moved to Minneapolis. I think I was 14 or 15. Uh, I was still 14 when we first moved to Minneapolis and you know, when you move into a new community, I didn't have any friends. Uh, I was, you know, we didn't have any other family there. So, you know, a little bit of a loner, obviously, for a while until I got my feet wet and started making some some friends. And, you know, it's like in Pittsburgh, you know, there was always big time wrestling, I believe was the name of the show uh, in, in Pittsburgh. And prior to that, there was wrestling in Detroit. So wrestling was always something that I enjoyed as a, as a young kid. And certainly when I got to Minneapolis, found the AWA and kind of sunk right in and, and became a fan of it. And I, re, I remember watching it, you know, Saturdays, I think it was on at six o'clock in the evenings on Saturday afternoons or Saturday evening. And that was like, you know, must see TV for me, <laughs> mostly because I didn't have a lot else going on as a new kid in the neighborhood, but it was fun. You know, it was one of those things that made me feel like I was kind of at home again because I had wrestling. Who were your favorite performers at the time? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, it's, it's going to sound funny. Um, Ivan Putsky. Wow. 
was one of my favorites. And I don't know why I just dug his character. You know, he had come out, he had like a, a wife beater on and, you know, they didn't call them board shorts back then, but he'd come out wearing, you know, construction boots and board shorts and, you know, with a wife beater on, he had a big old belly, big old beer drinking belly, but he was, you know, he was a stocky, you know, tough guy wearing his, uh, skull cap and, and just, he just looked the part and didn't really do much in the way of promos, but I loved his character inside of the ring. So he immediately, Ivan Putsky was one of my favorites. The crusher obviously, uh, was a favorite. Just his promos were so great. Uh, mad dog Vashon was one that I remember always looking forward to seeing, um, superstar Billy Graham, you know, it was a big hit there when I first started watching it in Minneapolis, uh, there were, there were many of them. Wahoo McDaniel, you know, Dusty Rhodes was the, the first time I had ever seen Dusty Rhodes was when he came through Vern's territory, uh, right after I first started watching it. So there was a lot of, a lot of great talent, some obscure talent, George scrap iron, Godaski, you know, I, I don't think he won a match in, you know, 345 consecutive appearances. <laughs> um, but you know, there was just, there was a lot of Baron Von Roschke was a big fan or I was a big fan of Baron's. Early on, I loved his character. And right off the bat, man, Nick Bockwinkle just kind of like, whoa, I realized, you know, he was the star. And, of course, Vern Gagne, you know, he was he was the face, the champion, the head of the organization. So he was the big dog. Let's talk about that because um, Vern is uh, the patriarch of the AWA. When was the first time you met Vern? You know, I met Vern – well, technically, the first time I met him was at a high school wrestling event. It was one of our regional tournaments were in a um, in a school district in Mound, Minnesota. And that's actually where Vern lived, uh, which is just west of Minneapolis, probably about 25 or 30 miles. <clears throat> and that was where uh, Vern went to school, actually, in Mound, Minnesota. So he was very, you know, Vern was a big supporter of, of amateur wrestling, high school wrestling in particular. And he came out to the regional tournaments and I think I had uh, placed in a top five or something like that. And, and he came along and shook all of our hands and congratulated us. Um, I didn't meet him individually, but you know what I mean? He met a big group of us. We all got to shake his hand and say hello. But that was, that was the, that was the first time I remember. So how did you go about, uh, hanging around and, and being in the locker room and being a part of the AWA as an organization? How did that come to be? Well, I mean, a lot of things happened, you know, in between I, I had, you know, I, that was the first time I met Vern. I think I was 15 <clears throat> wrestled all through high school. Still, you know, big fan of, of, of Vern's and the AWAs. My buddies and I used to drive pile in a car. We'd all go drive it out to, you know, Vern's home and couldn't get close to it. He lived way, you know, quite a ways back off the road. He had a big piece of property on Lake Minnetonka, but we'd all drive around hoping we'd get a look at Vern Gagne. But in terms of, you know, getting into the office, that was, you know, a series of coincidences, really. Um, Sonny Ono and I had developed a game called uh, Ninja Star Wars, I believe was the name of the game. Produced about 5,000 of them. <laughs> had no idea what we were going to do with them once they got shipped to us. We had them manufactured over in uh, South Korea. But had about 5,000 of these uh, games manufactured. Shipped them all to us. And they finally arrived. And we had them stuffed in every <laughs> every nook and cranny that we could find at, 
in our houses. And, you know, we had them in, in our neighbor's house, in our neighbor's garage, and our friends, our relatives were all acting as, you know, <laughs> satellite warehouses for all these games. We figured out we couldn't really sell them the way we had planned. So I picked up the phone and called uh, Vernganya's office. And I looked him up in the phone book. Didn't have their phone number. Just looked up Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club. Put a call in, explained to the receptionist who I was and, you know, that I wanted to speak to Vern Guy. Of course, I dropped the amateur wrestling, you know, card because I knew that that would probably get a positive reaction from Vern, or at least I hoped it would. And sure enough, it did. Got on the phone and introduced myself and told him I had a project I wanted to come in and talk to him about. And he said, sure, kid, come on in. You know, two days later, I was sitting in his office. So it's a big deal. You know, you, you think this could be your big break and obviously you're looking for a way to launch the new business. Um, I'm curious when you go make the pitch, does Sonny tag along? No, Sonny wasn't there. And you know, it, it was funny because I was still working for a company called blue ribbon food service. And I was, I was a sales manager and typically my days would start at seven 30 or eight in the morning. And then we would have a sales meeting every day, five days a week with our respective sales teams and then everybody would break for the day, usually about two o'clock, and then we'd start making our calls generally in the evening. So I had about a three or four hour break in the middle of the afternoon, and it was right after uh, our son Garrett was born. So I went home to check on him and check on Lori and just kill an hour or so, grab a bite to eat before I got busy again. And at that time, AWA had a show on ESPN five days a week. And I came home and, you know, turned on television and went to ESPN to watch, you know, all-star wrestling, kind of his background noise, really, not to sit down and watch it, but just to have it on. And as I was watching it, you know, talking to Lori, I, I saw some commercials that they weren't like for soap or beer or cars or anything, and they weren't local commercials. Um, they were like, you know, Suzanne Summers and her thigh master, if you remember that. A couple different commercials like that. And I realized, now I didn't know what a per inquiry or direct sale was at that time. Um, they were still relatively new in media. I, I want to I noticed here. that there were all these commercials where you could buy the product, you know, by calling a 1-800 line, placing your order, and then they would be shipped to you. And it occurred to me watching those commercials that day that, wow, you know, if I could ever get to Vern Gagne, you know, knowing that he's got a huge wrestling audience, it's on late in the afternoon, so kids coming home from school – you know, around the country, you'll probably be tuning in to wrestling, or at least a good portion of them. <clears throat> I thought, what a better place, you know, to to cut a commercial for this Ninja Star Wars games. And if, if I could talk Vince into selling it, you know, on his air, I'd split the profit with him. So that was th the deal. And once I made the appointment with Vern, I, you know, it, I didn't really need Sonny to come in and help me pitch. I was pretty comfortable doing that. So, I, no, I went in solo. So you make your, uh, your trek over to the office and, uh, I think everybody knows by now that AWA's business was, uh, on the downslope a little bit at the time. Tell us about the office and what your impressions of the office were. And, uh, you know, just carry me through that day in that first meeting. Yeah, no, you know, it's funny. I didn't realize because I wasn't obviously paying attention to the business of the wrestling business. You know, I was aware of WWF and you know, that they were going national. <clears throat> and I certainly knew the distinction between them and what Vern was doing as a regional promoter, but I didn't really, you know, I wasn't really a, a hardcore fan. who didn't really understand what was going on in all the different territories. 
you know, since Vince, you know, had taken his product nationally. So I didn't know that guys like Vern and Don Owens and Jerry Jarrett and so many others um, were really having a difficult financial time. And getting into the the AWA offices, it wasn't apparent. You know, the offices were really nice. Were in a part of just barely west of Minneapolis as you were getting into the sub suburbs, a little area called Golden Valley, which was a beautiful area, right across the street from Betty Crocker and Pillsbury and a lot of big banking systems uh, in in Minneapolis. So it was in a very nice area, big office. I think it was formerly a church in a, a series of offices att- attached to the church. <clears throat> you couldn't tell by looking at it. It didn't look like a church, but it was at one point. And the big church area is where the studio was, and the offices looked just like any other offices. They were nice. Um, I, I got in a nice big lobby. It looked looked great, uh, very impressive. And I was escorted back to Vern's office, and Vern's office was really long. It must have been. 60, 80 feet long. I mean, it was really long, probably about 30, 40 feet wide. And he had a, a conference table, you know, about 20 feet from his desk that had to be a good 15 or 20 feet long. And there was probably 20 chairs all around it. And I got there because I was, I was excited and, and nervous, I guess, uh, anxious, all of the above. And I got in, I brought a couple of my games with me, and then everybody that worked in the office, Wahoo McDaniels, Ray Stevens. Keep in mind, I only knew those guys from television. So, you know, all of a sudden they walk in the room and introduce themselves. And, you know, some of the office staff were there. There were probably three or four secretaries that were there. And and uh, I think the accountant came in. So there's just everybody that happened to be in the office. And naturally, Vernon and Greg were, were in the room. And I found myself, you know, explaining the game and I took the, the, the game out and I showed them how it worked. And then I put a, a, a vest because that's what the game was. It came with kind of a felt vest with a, a ninja character kind of silk screen on the front of it. And then you put on a headband that had a very p- flexible kind of plastic eye shield to protect your eyes. And then each game came with three red stars and three white stars. And they were big, you know, they're probably the size of your palm, I guess. And they were weighted down. They were they were padded, but they were weighted down in the middle with a small washer just to give it some weight so you could throw it and get some distance. And I put these vests on and you know, put everybody's eye protections on and started chasing people around the desk playing Ninja Star Wars. And the place was cracking up. Everybody was having fun. You know, the girls, the office staff was there and they all got involved and everybody everybody got a pretty good kick out of it. And and Vince or excuse me, Vince, Vern agreed to do it. Wow. That's awesome, man. So uh, he agrees to, uh, to help you promote the product and, and what sort of deal do you guys cut and put together? Yeah. So what I said to Vern is, look, I've manufactured the games, the games at that point, I think they cost us about six bucks a piece, five or six bucks a piece, uh, was our cost. <clears throat> I said, look, I'll, I've already paid for the games. Um, I'll produce a 30 second commercial. You air the commercial. I'll do the fulfillment and then we'll split the profit 50, 50. And that was the deal. And, and, and like I said, he went for it. That's awesome. So, I mean, how did the game sell? Unfortunately, they sold too well. Um, this was my first foray into a per inquiry or direct sale business. Right. And 
what I didn't know <laughs> that I wish I would have known is that, you know, I was really successful in marketing towards kids and kids would order these things. And of course their parents didn't know it. So I'd go, you know, I'd ship him UPS or however we shipped them, whichever was, you know, the most affordable way to ship them or to ship them at the time. And I would get about 30 or 40% of them returned. And by the time they got returned to me, the packaging was all, you know, trashed. The boxes were crushed. And I had now I got a, a, a shipping charge to and from that I ended up incurring. So I sold a ton of games, but the return rate is what killed me. It it really ate up all my profit margin because I didn't anticipate it. And it it ended up costing us some, you know, we didn't it, we didn't lose money on the proposition, but we certainly didn't make as much as we had hoped either. Well, let's talk about uh, how the relationship, you know, evolves because obviously you didn't just do the Ninja Stars. Somehow you wound up becoming a part of the company. Tell me how that transition happened. Yeah, I mean, it was during the time that we were running the commercials, and like I said, they were doing really fairly well and probably in terms of the business that Vern was generating with his commercial inventory, it might've been doing better than anything else that he had going at the time. So we, it was, you know, it was a positive vibe. You know, everybody was pretty excited about the fact that we, you know, we had came up with an idea for a game, figured out how to have them manufactured, you know, for a reasonable price. And then came up with this, you know, order and fulfillment plan that was working reasonably well for what it was. And I think um, there was a guy there by the name of Mike Shields. And Mike had previously worked for Jerry Jarrett down in, in Nashville and had come to work for Vern, I think, about a year or so before I got there. Mike was really the – he was really the operations manager. Now, he, he had a strong background in television production, so he oversaw all of the production. He didn't get involved creatively at all. But he oversaw the the production of the events, uh, his television events, as well as all the interviews and everything that took place, the edit market specific promos that had to be done and inserted in all the different markets, driving live event business and things like that. So Mike was like the operations guy that oversaw that process. But he also oversaw um, the sales and syndication side of the business commercial sales and syndication. And I think, you know, Mike recognized that I was a hustler as, as a young guy. Um, I, I was a, you know, natural salesman. And I think that was pretty easy for Mike to pick up on right away. And they needed, AWA needed somebody to go out and sell their syndication because nobody was doing it. And I think, you know, Mike looked at me as somebody who was enthusiastic and excited to, you know, be even remotely involved in the wrestling business. Obviously I was a fan and just given my background in sales, offered me a job in syndication. Truth be known, I didn't even know what the fuck syndication was. Right. He said, "How'd you like to? How'd you like to head up our our syndication sales?" And I, I said, "Absolutely." What is it? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. And he said, "Look, you just take you know demo tapes of our show around to, you know, independent." Independent television stations around the country and convince them to air our, our show so that we can promote live events in that market. And I thought, well, hell, it's no different than what I'm doing now. Sales is sales, you know, whether you're selling, you know, commercial meat products or you're selling vacuum cleaners or you're selling life insurance. Sales is sales. Once you know your product, it's really all the same. So I was, I was excited about it. I resigned from my job as a sales manager for, for a food processor. And went to work selling syndication. 
So how, um, what was the strategy? You know, we've talked about, you know, Turner television sales before and how uh, wrestling was a tough sell compared to some of the other properties, but now you're out just selling wrestling, um, sort of share us what share with us, what the pitch was, uh, what the objections you ran into were, who your like target sponsors were just chat me up about that. Yeah, I didn't really get too involved in the sponsorship side of things. My focus really was on taking the show, the AWA product, going down. For example, I'd go to Mason City, Iowa, KIMT. I don't know why I remember it, but I do. Um, I, I went down there and met the general manager of the television station, the local station there. I think it was an NBC affiliate, by the way, uh, NBC or ABC, I can't remember. But I uh, went down, met the general manager who introduced me to the program director. And the program director, you know, the general manager generally made all of the decisions, but the program directors had a lot of influence. They were the ones that, you know, knew the local market and what they could sell in the local market to, to local advertisers. So I met with the program director in that particular market. And, you know, the good news is <clears throat> most of the then, you know, most of those people had grown up you know, watching AWA. They were all very familiar with it and remembered the AWA when it was in its heyday, you know, in the 70s and in the early 80s before, you know, things turned around and, and Vince took WWF nationwide. So, you know, Vern had a pretty good reputation and it wasn't that hard of a sell normally. Um, that was generally the case throughout the upper Midwest. You know, I'm talking about obviously Minnesota, North South Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, <clears throat> a little bit of Illinois, Wisconsin, you know, that was my territory. And all of those people were familiar with AWA, but they had just kind of lost touch with it. And like I said, nobody was actively selling it. So it, it was easy for the property to go off their radar. So when I would come into a local market, and again, these were most of them, you know, really small market, Kearney, Nebraska, you know, it wasn't always in the big cities, a lot of often in, in really, really small markets, you know, Rockford, Illinois, and Joliet, Illinois, and Des Moines, Iowa, places like that. And, you know, it was pretty much the same thing, you know, introduce myself, I, I'd call and make an appointment, obviously. Once I got there, I'd introduce myself and, and I'd pitch them the product. And, you know, my, my sales points at that point were, you know, most people in the Midwest, even though there's this WWF product, you know, they grew up watching AWA and that's their hometown, you know, wrestling show. And it's kind of like the home team versus, you know, the away team kind of thing. And most of them, you know, I would say I was successful, hmm, probably 60 70% of the time I took their syndication when I took over, when I started, I had, I think Vern had 32 individual stations around the upper Midwest that carried AWA within my first six or eight months. I think I had it up to 75 or 80. Looking for a great mother's day or father's day gift idea. I was, and I found it at paint your life with paint your life. You'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off 
and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text the word weeks to 87204. That's weeks to 87204. Text weeks to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Wow, that's awesome, man. Yeah, you um, you wrote in your book about you know how they went from just 32 stations to a good deal more than that. And eventually, about a year after you start, you said Mike Shields came to you and said, why don't you come to Las Vegas and sit in on one of the shows and watch what we do? Uh, what'd you think of that when he lays that pitch to you? I was so excited because again, I was not, I, I was kind of autonomous. You know, I worked for the AWA. I had my office was there and all of that, but I wasn't really, I mean, not really, I wasn't involved at all in, you know, producing the television or watching the you know product being, being produced. I wasn't obviously aware or involved in any way, shape or form of the creative side of things. So it was still all such a major mystery to me. And for me in particular, I'm always, I've always been kind of a curious sort, you know, I don't like when, for example, and I always use this as an analogy, you know, uh, I had to, I had to literally sit down with a salesman for microwave ovens about 30 years ago and ask him to explain to me how they worked because I used one every day, but I had no idea how it worked. So I've always had a real curiosity about how things work, especially things that you use all the time. And television was really a big question mark for me because, you know, as a child of the 60s, you know, I was born in 55. But, you know, by 1960, 61, 62, television was my life, right? It was a big deal. Families all gathered around the television set at night. And it was a, it was a much more communal experience, obviously, than it is now. So I was fascinated with television and television when I was a kid was still relatively new and it was like a microwave oven. Everybody had a television set, but nobody really understood, especially me. How does that work? How do, how do you get from a stage or a sound stage or a football field or whatever into people's homes? What is that process? And when Mike invited me to go to Las Vegas and actually be a part of production, it was like, oh, man. This that, that was the most awesome thing for me because now I would finally get a chance to learn how this product that you know was such a big part of all of our lives and still is to this day, but especially back then. Um, I'm finally gonna get a chance to see how this shit actually works. And it was it was really exciting for me. So you go out and um you take a look, and it's a pretty uh gotta be a pretty uh, important visit in the, in the history of your life, just because we know how this story ends, carry me through, you know, the wrestling side, what you remember, what it was like being a part of the show as a longtime fan. And now having boots on the ground and, and sort of seeing how the sausage is made for lack of a better word. Well, I, w I, you know, I was still limited. I didn't get a chance to see 
you know, how television was laid out. I wasn't a part of the formatting process, you know, not certainly not a part of the creative. I didn't get to see any of that. That was still way, way, way behind the curtain at this point. But, you know, the production truck, you know, that was a different deal. And I had never been in a, I didn't know what a production truck was for crying out loud. So when, when Mike invited me into this production truck and I, you know, it was a long, you know, the, the length of, you know, it was like 53 feet long, the length of a, of a, you know, a semi-truck trailer only instead of it being empty to haul, you know, goods back and forth across the country. This thing was loaded with, you know, videotape machines and switchers and control boards and, you know, monitors all over the wall. It was really, really overwhelming. And for someone like me who had never seen it before, <clears throat> it was a little bit like, you know, walking uh, and th that was my thought, you know, the first time I walked in that truck was like, wow, this is like walking into the, you know, the captain's chair of the, you know, Starship Enterprise. You know, it was just so fascinating to me. And I remember watching Mike, you know, they were rehearsing inside of the showboat and, and Mike was in the truck and I was standing behind him watching him and he's directing, you know, and, you know, he's probably was probably a five camera shoot at that time. And just watching him calling for different shots, I was so impressed and fascinated as to how he could be watching all those different monitors simultaneously and picking the exact shots at the exact time he wanted them. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that is one hell of a job. I, it was just, everything was so overwhelming to me. It was, it was crazy. I was the, um, technical director and basically i made sure that the chirons were were correct and that the graphics were correct for the wrestlers names and they they came up at the correct time and things like that so he he showed me how to do that it's a very very simple job it took about 10 minutes for him to show me how to do it um but the fact that i was sitting there right next to him while he's directing the show and you know i'm the you know technical director so to speak uh i felt like oh my gosh he's he's letting me fly the plane for a minute this is so cool it was, it was really looking back at it now, you know, when I think about the things that really excited me the most, I think that was one of them is, as minor as it really was in the big scheme of things. But at that time, you know, context being King at that time and in that context, it was such a fascinating experience for me and I'll never forget it. Well, the first time we at home get to see you is when you somehow make the leap from that production truck to in front of the camera. Talk me through when that happened, which I would guess would be late 88, early 89, maybe. Yeah. Not sure of the exact dates, but it's sometime in there. And, and again, it was much like, you know, me getting the job in the AWA. I never planned on getting a job in the AWA. I didn't strategize for it. I didn't have a, a you know, a plan or a pitch or anything like that. It just kind of happened, you know, and the same is true for me being on camera. I was back in my office one day and, you know, making calls and, you know, trying to get appointments with television stations and, and things like that. At that time, I was starting to work on sponsorships at that point. So, you know, I had a little bit more on my plate and was dealing generally at a little bit of a higher level in terms of people I was pitching. And uh, I, I happened to have, a, you know, always had a sport coat in my office, a clean sport coat and a clean tie just in case something came up and I had to, to run out and make a call unexpectedly. You know, dress casual was, was pretty much the norm in Vern's office. But I always had a sport coat and a shirt and tie in my office just in case. So I was back working one day. And uh, back at that time, and this is going to be a little hard for 
people to relate to or understand, but Vern's business was all driven by live events. I would say 60 or 70% of his revenue came from live events, which is the only reason he produced his show and had it syndicated in all these little towns and markets around the Midwest so he could customize promos in those 30-second commercial positions or one-minute commercial positions and customize those prom- customize those promos so that we could drive you know the locals in that particular market whether it was Mason City or Des Moines or wherever you know to the arena on any given weekend and in order to accomplish that <clears throat> because you know Vern was his territory i think it was a monthly territory so every weekend he was somewhere in some part of that you know five or six day region but in order to accomplish that promotion about twice a month, he had to fly in his entire roster that would be involved in those particular matches. And then they would get up with the, you know, Larry Nelson was the the Gene Oakland, if you will, the stick man uh, when I got hired. And they would get up there with Larry Nelson and, you know, they would talk about their matches coming up, cutting promos on each other. And that's when they would tell you, where, you know, where the building is and, you know, what time the show is going to be, where you can buy your tickets, who's the sponsors, all that kind of stuff. And then build some anticipation for the match. So that, that process would normally take mm, eight, 12 hours. Like I said, twice a month. And then that'll be that. Well, I was back in my office one day when everybody had been flown in from all different parts of the country to do these, you know, edit market specifics as they call them or edit market promos. And Greg Gagne, I I think it was pretty sure it was Greg. It was either Greg or Mike Shields. I don't, I can't recall. One of those two came to my office and said, uh, (laughs) put on your dress shirt, throw on your sport coat and tie and come on back. We need you for a second. I thought, wow, this is weird. Now keep in mind, I'd never been invited now, now all the wrestlers are over on the studio side of the office. I had never been invited back there before. That was off limits. You know, the days that wrestlers came in, I was pretty well regulated to my office. And, you know, nobody ever said, look, don't come out of your office or don't go into the studio. But they didn't have to tell me. It was kind of an unspoken thing. Uh, Vern was very much into kayfabe at that time. And it was real apparent to me that he didn't want me anywhere near the talent or the creative process, which was fine with me. I had no desire to get involved in it. It was a, quite honestly the one of the farthest things from my mind. No interest in it, really, surprisingly. So I, you know, got through on my shirt and my sport coat and my tie, and I went back, and that's when, you know, Greg and Vern said, look, Larry Nelson's not here. He had apparently gotten a DUI, then not apparently, he did. He got a DUI the night before, and it wasn't his first one. So he was, he, he was going to do a little bit of time. And it was probably five or six hours before anybody figured out that he was in jail. And by this time, you know, there was talent sitting around for four or five hours and Vern was losing his mind and Greg was too. So they came up with the idea of just trying to get me to do it. They knew I had been on camera. I was, I was a model. I had done some television commercials uh, for Sears and Target and things like that and did a lot of print work. So, you know, they knew that, you know, I'd at least been in front of a camera before, but they were not these types of cameras, you know, nobody asked me to talk. I wasn't selling anything. I was just, you know, walking around in t-shirts and jeans and work boots and shit like that. So they brought me in and they said, okay, here's what we want you to do. Now, keep in mind, I'd grown up watching wrestling. 
<clears throat> I used to watch Marty O'Neill back in the AWA. He was the stick man before Gene Okerlund came along. And then I was a big fan of Gene Okerlund's in the AWA. So I knew what the job was. It's not like it was a new, a new concept to me. It's just I had never done it. And like anything else that looks fairly easy, when really, really talented people do it, I thought, well, okay, I can figure this out. It can't be that tough. So they explained it to me, you know, okay, look over here. See there? When that red light on that camera goes on, you know, the cameraman's going to give you a five, four, three, two, one. He's going to point at you. That means go. Now, here's all of the information you've got to get out there before the talent comes into the scene. So you're, you're talking about the event coming up, who's sponsoring it locally, where they can buy tickets, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and by the way, you know, this weekend you're going to see Larry Zabisco. Larry, come on in here and tell us about your match. And, of course, Larry, you know, I'm, I'm using Larry as an example. He came into the scene. And then, you know, he would cut his promo and then I'd put a button on it. Now, he's, now Vern says, now, look, when you see the cameraman shake his fist, he goes, that means you've got 15 seconds. And then he's going to count you down from 10. So you've got to wrap all of this up, you know, in 30 seconds or a minute, depending on how long the spot was. So I thought, okay, I can figure that out. It's easy enough on paper. And my very first one was indeed with Larry Zabisco. And I'm, you know, I'm nervous and there's like 40 or 50 guys all standing around watching me. And it, that didn't make me too nervous. I mean, a little bit nervous because it was an odd situation for me. It was unique. I'd never done it before. And I had never been around all of the wrestlers at one time. So I, I was a little, I don't know if intimidated was, was the right word, but I was certainly out of place. I knew that. And I'm going, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to give this my best shot. And the camera, his name was Joe Chupik, by the way. Good guy. Super good guy. Polish Joe. Big, tall guy with a giant nose. <clears throat> and Joe gets up and he's going, five, four, three. Now, I'm holding my breath because I'm nervous. That's usually what people do when they get nervous on cameras. They hold their breath. Five, four, three, two, one. He pointed at me. And I don't remember what I blurted out. I must have, like, everybody that I've ever worked with the first time they're on camera, they, when they're nervous, they rush, right? They don't take their time. They don't breathe. They don't relax. They just vomit out whatever information they were able to memorize. And that's exactly what I did. And I just garbled out something and I, you know, I stepped on myself within the first 15 seconds. I screwed it up and it got eerily quiet. And I looked over at Larry Zabisco and he just busted out laughing. I mean, belly laugh. He folded over. You know, I think part of it was he was really laughing at me, but part of it he was just putting on a show, busting my balls. Absolutely humiliated me. <laughs> and we said, God, God damn it. Cut, Larry. Shut up, Larry. God damn it. And, you know, slapped his forehead, which that's what, you know, Vern was famous for. He said, okay, let's try this again. And Mike Shields came over and he kind of calmed me down a little bit, gave me a couple pointers. And that was like what the next – 12 or 16 hours of my day was like, and I, I tell you what, by the time I got done, we got through it. I don't know how we got through it. I'm sure it was just God awful, horrible. I'm sure of that, but they didn't have any choice. They had to get them done. You know, by the time that day was over, I, I had never been so happy to take off my tie and go back to my office. 
and I was so looking forward to jumping in my car and go doing what I was good at, which was selling syndication. I never wanted to step foot in front of a camera again. It was just, it just drained me trying to do something like that, that I had never done before. It was really, it was really funny. Well, you wound up doing it more. Um, but first I think they tried to find someone else. Uh, talk me through that process. They try somebody. Yeah, I mean, and, and that was the thing, you know, and again, you, you have to keep in mind, Vern didn't have many resources at that point. He had a, he had a beautiful home. It was a mansion out on this really exclusive area of Minneapolis called Lake Minnetonka. He must've been on, I don't know for certain how big his property was, but I'm guessing it was in the 40 to 60 acre range right on this beautiful lake. Uh, and it was worth, uh, we're, we're going back to the late eighties now. I'm sure even then it was worth five to 7 million would, would be the market value back then. And Vern wow. owned it. It wow. was paid, paid for, but that's what Vern was using to, he was borrowing against that property to keep AWA afloat. I didn't know that at the time. Um, but because Things were so tight, and Vern was literally floating AWA out of his own pocket, certainly not out of cash flow because th there was no cash flow. The ticket sales, the arena business was horrible. He wasn't really making any money off of any of his commercial material other than per inquiries, mine and a few others. Um, the majority of his ad sales were coming from really super opportunistic ad buyers like you know Eminem Mars, for example. They didn't care what show they were on. They didn't care, you know, male, female kids. They didn't care. All they were doing is buying eyeballs. The bad news is they were paying very, very low CPMs or what they call cost per thousands. So, you know, you, you report to them what your ratings were in a given week and that, you know, calculated to the number of households, you know, watching and the number of people watching and you would get $5 a thousand. So it was really just bottom of the barrel advertising is the only advertising that Vern was getting and a little bit of local stuff in Minneapolis. So they couldn't really afford to hire anybody really qualified. They tried, uh, they brought it, you know, after, you know, my disaster, uh, uh, on camera experience, they hired another local announcer, a radio guy. Cause Vern really liked radio guys. He preferred radio people over television people. Uh, cause he's just, he believed that you had to have that Gene Okerlund, Marty O'Neill, even Larry Nelson had this really deep, powerful voice. And that's, you know, Vern was, that's what impressed Vern. If you, he didn't really care what you look like, as long as you had a, you know, one of those voices from, you know, a radio God is, is what he was looking for. So he tried a couple of those guys and they, they actually sucked worse than I did. Uh, so I got, you know, the, the following month is like, Oh Jesus, we don't have anybody yet. Let's get Eric in here. So, you know, back I came by this time I had a little bit better of an idea the second time around what I was doing. So I, I got a little bit better and then they found somebody else to replace me. This guy's name was Ralph Strangis. Um, good, good dude, by the way. And you'll see him in the team challenge series. When, when we talk about that, uh, he was actually hosting the show with Greg Gagne and Ralph. I don't think Ralph had any, he was a younger guy. He was my age. You know, at the time I was probably 32 or 33. Um, Ralph was my age or maybe even a little bit younger, but he had been doing college sports, particularly hockey. He was a huge hockey fan. And Ralph actually went on, he left the AWA, believe it or not on ESPN 
and got hired to be the voice of the Minnesota North Stars and then moved to Dallas when the Minnesota North Stars were purchased and moved to Dallas. And, you know, Ralph was a long time, like 10, 15 years, the play-by-play guy for the Dallas uh, Dallas Stars. But I worked with I worked with Ralph, you know, off and on, and that didn't work out for whatever reason. And then they just, I think, just sheer, well, financially, they couldn't afford to hire anybody else, number one. Number two, I had done it enough where I wasn't horrible. I wasn't good, but I wasn't fucking awful either. So I think they just threw up their hands and said, screw it, let's just go with Eric. At least we can afford him. And that's really what it was. You know, I, I was in the office anyway. They didn't have to pay me any extra. I was willing to try. I worked at it pretty hard. You know, and off nights, believe it or not, and, and I just realized this going back and watching the Team Challenge series, you know, Sergeant Slaughter would come in because he was living in Minneapolis, and he would work with me at night practicing promos. Uh, Brad Ringens would come in because Brad was working for Vern Gagne at the time, and he'd work with me. Baron came in once and worked with me, you know, after, after hours just to try to help me get a little bit better. And I think after a while I just got decent enough that they said, screw it. We can't afford to hire anybody that's really good. Let's just let the kid do it. So when it ended, I was, it, I, it was atrophy. I, th- I think they just got used to the pain. Any fun memories uh, from your time as an on-air talent there? You know. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. I think it was the learning process. And again, I, I'll, I'll probably say this many times on, on this particular episode because I learned so much in the AWA. And I wasn't – I mean, I, I loved wrestling. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to make it sound like I didn't really care about wrestling. I did like the product, and I enjoyed it as a fan. But I was more interested in the process of it all from the beginning to the end. You know, the beginning, somebody sits down with a piece of paper and says, okay, let's come up with some ideas. The end, of course, being the product that the viewer watched. And there were so many um, steps within that process that I, I had no idea what they were. So what I was, you know, I learned a little bit on the technical side through Mike, you know, and we're skipping over some pretty big pieces here and bouncing back and forth along this timeline. But, you know, after I was in the production truck in Las Vegas and, you know, I think Mike noticed how excited I was to learn about the technical side, the you know, the physical production side of things that I, you know, he invited me into the control room, you know, once we got back and watched how the shows were edited you know, and, and I got involved in that whole process. I learned how to edit a show. I didn't edit them myself, but I, I worked with Joe Chupek who, you know, showed me how it all came together. And th- that process for me, seeing it, learning it, being able to do it, you know, learning how to do it, that was the highlight for me. It wasn't being with the wrestlers or even going to Las Vegas and being a part of the production. It really was for me learning the process of how it all came together that got me the most excited. 
So let's talk about, um, when you first realized that the AWA, um, is probably on its last legs. You know, I think, uh, everybody knows that when Vince went national, he approached a lot of the offices and offered to buy them out. Uh, some took him up on that. Most did not. And then he would go into their town, figure out where they were doing their TV and then offer the local market more money, uh, to play their TV instead. And in some markets they were just doing, you know, a share of the ad sales. And sometimes they were just trying to sell it themselves. But if you had this era of the infomercial, which you sort of talked about earlier, uh, this, this came about in a way where all of a sudden these Historically, AWA television stations now carried the WWF. When you jump in, you don't really know all the inner workings of the business, but I'm sure eventually it became apparent that, uh, my checks are getting here slower and slower. When do you remember noticing? Oh no, I think the wheels are running off. Well, you know, I started in the AWA in 87, you know, Within six months or a year, I had gotten pretty friendly with Vern and, and Wahoo McDaniel and Ray Stevens, who worked in the office. I spent a lot of time with those guys and learned a lot more about what was going on, you know, not only within AWA and, and the things that led up to the situation that Vern was in. But, and certainly I spent a lot of time with Greg Gagne. Um, where I heard all the stories. And as you pointed out, yeah, the WWF would come in and try to muscle Vern out of many of the markets that he was up to that point pretty solidly entrenched in. Um, but WWF also stole a ton of Vern's talent. Bobby Heenan, Gene Oakland, Jesse the Body Ventura, Hulk Hogan. Oh, you use the word stole there. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make sure because you always push back and say, I didn't steal any talent from Vince McMahon. They called me. So this is different. No, it's not. And, and, and I use the word stole improperly. Um, Vern didn't have many of his talent under contract. Vern was one of those old school promoters where everything was a handshake. He did have some agreements with some of the guys, some of them informal, some of them formal. I wasn't aware of the details of all of that, but what Vince did, um, actually more aggressively than, than what he claimed I did to him, uh, because I did, I, I never did go after any of, of, of Vince's talent. I never once picked up the phone and called somebody who was working with Vince and said, Hey, do you think you might want to come over and work for me instead? That never happened. Not with Hulk, not with Randy, not with anybody. Um, they came to me. The difference with Vince is that he aggressively went after people that were currently working with Vern aggressively. And he didn't steal them. But in the context of the time where that kind of behavior was unheard of, right? because, you know, in in the territory business, you just would never do that to somebody. That, even if it was somebody that you were highly competitive with, you don't do that. Um, so in the context of the time, it was referred to as stealing. But people were free to choose to do whatever they wanted to do. And Vince was offering an awful lot. You know, he he made a very good case for himself. 
but Vince targeted the AWA very, very aggressively. Sergeant Slaughter, Jesse the Body Ventura, Hulk Hogan, as I said, uh, Kurt Henning, Mean Gene Oakland, Bobby Heenan, um, and probably more. Rick Rude, you know, all those guys came from the AWA over to the WWF. So, so Vince was not only applying pressure on the television side of the business, he absolutely gutted Vern's roster. And you're watching all of this happen. Do you remember there being a moment where, I mean, can you trace it back and realize that, oh shit, this is when the wheels ran off? Well, actually all of that happened before I got there. You know, Gene Oakland was gone before I got there. Bobby Heenan was gone about a year before I left or two years, whatever it was. They were they were gone, you know, before I got there. So, you know, I would sit and listen to to Wahoo and Ray and Greg and and oftentimes Vern, you know, talking about how the, how all that happened. And it was obvious and you know, just the day-to-day operations, you know, money was a real tight thing. You know, there wasn't a lot of money to go around. Every time we did something, it was on a very, very, very tight budget because, again, it was coming right out of, you know, Vern's pocketbook, um, not out of cash flow. So it was apparent to me that they were hurting. It was obviously apparent to me when when I'd go to a, a local event that we were promoting and, you know, 400 people would be in the arena. I, I could do the math in my head and figure out that we were losing money doing that. Um it, it was it was very obvious, but to me, I was still in the, you know, I was still in the wide-eyed, you know, deer in the headlights phase. You know, I was aware of it, but I didn't concern myself with it. It didn't affect me directly. You know, I was still getting paid my six hundred dollars a week was my starting salary. Actually, working for Vern Gagne, um, my checks were still in, in nineteen eighty-eight um, into nineteen eighty-nine. They were still showing up on time. It really wasn't until. Towards ninety, you know, towards the middle of ninety, late late nineteen ninety, that all of a sudden checks were two, three, four, five weeks behind, and that's when it, that's when I started seeing the handwriting on the wall. Yeah, I'm sure you're pretty uh, stressed out. Uh, so let's talk about the uh, the whole situation with Vern, and um, he needs you to do a little more and more, and eventually the checks start to slow down. But before the wheels run totally off, we're all treated to an idea that was just debuted on the WWE network in the hidden gym section, which is probably the catalyst for us doing this show today. And it's the team challenge series. Now you sort of mentioned a minute ago, you knew that revenues had to be down because you would rent an arena and there's only 400 fans there. So Vern's idea to sort of compete in a different way and probably reduce the overhead is to lean on technology and try something new. And I know everybody's had a lot of fun sort of making fun of this hidden gem in the AWA, but realistically, if you can't compete with the big production budget of Ted Turner in 1989, or certainly Vince McMahon, who's got a stronghold on the profession, you've got to have something that looks different. And even though it may have missed, I got to give props to Ganya for trying something different. Uh, what did you uh, think or who pitched you? How did you first hear about this new concept for the way they were going to try something new? 
Well, again, I wasn't in management. I wasn't a part of any decision-making processes or, or, or a part of any planning or strategy or anything like that. I just showed up and did what I was asked to do every day. Um, there was a guy, Mike Shields was working with a gentleman out of Chicago. His name was Bob Sires, uh, S-Y-E-R-S, I believe. And Bob was actually the the guy, his company was representing the AWA in the national television market, meaning ESPN. So Bob and Mike had been having some conversations, and I think it was Bob's idea more than anybody else's to try to come up with a format that allowed Vern to kind of camouflage the fact that he couldn't put any people in arenas. This is kind of the same problem that WCW had when I got there. It's the same problem that TNA had. It's the same problem that Impact Wrestling is having now. You know, if you can't draw a crowd, how do you make your television product feel important? And again, you know, if you take yourself out of what you think you understand about the wrestling business or what, what historically has worked in the wrestling business, <clears throat> and you put yourself in the, in the, you know, the, the place of a viewer who's just a passive viewer, not a hardcore fan like most of the people that we talk to or maybe even listen to this particular podcast. But if you're just an average fan or a passive fan and you turn on your television and you look at this action going on inside of the ring and you see 40 or 50 people sitting at ringside, it, it sends you a message that what you're watching isn't really very important or, or, or viable. And that's where Vern was at that time. His house show business was horrible. You know, we were producing a lot of our shows for ESPN. We would go down to the Rochester Mayo Civic Arena because it was only about 80 miles from Minneapolis and it was cheap. And we would produce all of our ESPN shows out of there. Well, much like WCW, when I first got there, they had to paper the whole house because nobody really cared. There wasn't any real talent there anymore. All of the name talent that the people in you know the Minneapolis market where we were producing our shows, you know, all all of the top talent that was driving Vern's business for decades were all gone. They were in the WWF. The only people left were, you know brand new talent that nobody had ever heard of before. And consequently they weren't drawing a crowd. So I think what happened, you know, and again, I wasn't involved with it, so I'm not speaking from authority on this, but just from what I remember hearing and seeing, uh, Bob Sires was the guy that I think originally said, look, why don't we come up with a different way to produce the show? And I think between he and Mike Shields, they, you know, decided to try to take advantage of this, you know, just cutting edge technology called chroma key <laughs> or green screen. And try to figure out a way to replace the energy that you would normally get and, and credibility that you would normally get with a live arena audience with something that they could create in post-production. And it wasn't, you know, I don't think anybody was like, oh, my God, we've got lightning in the bottle here. This is going to change the business forever. I think it was more of a, you know, attempted solution to a major problem that they couldn't otherwise overcome. So you watched it. What'd you think? You know, we, we sort of talked about it up front a little bit. There's lots of, uh, pre-tapes, uh, with Greg Gagne sort of introducing clips and he's uncomfortably close to his broadcast partner. He mentioned a little earlier and then they've got a pre-tapes from like Baron and Sergeant Slaughter. And then you guys were filming matches in an empty building. Do you remember here? Well, it was actually it was um, at a television station, a local television station in Minneapolis, and they had a studio there. 
and we filmed it in the studio and there was no people, you know, and again, if you go back 20 years earlier, 10 years earlier, uh, 15, you know, Vern was producing a show over at uh, WTCN Channel 11, the local, what became the NBC affiliate. They had their, their own, you know, small studio, much like Jerry Jarrett had, and a lot of, you know, independent or territory promoters used at the time. And back then, when I started watching AWA, there was only probably 60 or 80 people around the ring, but that's what you were used to. You know, nobody had ever seen the big arenas filled with, you know, thousands of people before. So that was the standard. Now that WWF, you know, fast forward to WWF, they had increased their production values, you know, turned it into a really, you know, impressive, you know, live event from a production point of view. And there were, you know, thousands of people. It looked like 10,000. It probably wasn't. In most cases, it was 3,500 or 2,500. But at that point, that had you never saw that before. So this was, like I said, this was Vern's way to try to camouflage what he was doing. And yeah, all the matches took place inside of an empty soundstage, basically, or studio at a local television station. And then the camouflage came by way of, you know, Greg Gagne and Ralph Sarangis, you know, were presumably in a studio or a control room. That's what it was meant to be. No different than if you're watching, you know, Monday Night Football and you've got your analysts up in their 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 suite, you know, calling the game. And during the game, you know, you come up to the analysts and they banter back and forth or during a, you know, commercial break or whatever. Um, so, you know, Ralph and, and Greg were in the control room, uh, setting up what we were about to see and kind of filling, filling in the blanks and kind of advancing the story. They used, you know, traditional pre-taped interviews, uh, much like Vern had always done building up kind of the storyline between, you know, the characters that were involved in, in their matches. And then, and this is the part and watching it the other day over on Patreon. Um, and I, you know, I completely forgot all about it. So you see that the talent would make their entrance and what they were making their entrance in, in real life, was a completely enclosed green environment, chroma key green. And then the faces of an audience from somewhere, I don't know where they came from, was keyed to make it look like they were on that screen. So the talent was walking out reacting to people who weren't really there which is what actors do all the time, by the way, but these guys weren't actors and nobody had ever seen anything like this before. And, you know, watching it the other day, I was like, oh my God, this was like, whenever this took place, 1989, I think is when it happened. It was like, holy crap, <laughs> this is really bizarro looking. And you have to remember, you know, chroma key was still a fairly new technology back then. So it was in a way it was kind of cool. But it didn't serve the purpose of making the audience feel like the talent was actually engaging or reacting to those people that were keyed in on that screen. And they would use cutaways. And it took me a while to figure it out watching it the other day. Like, where, do these, where are these cutaways coming from? It was never explained, you know, where these people are. You just you'd get a cutaway during the course of a match of, you know, a bunch of people in a sports bar cheering. So well, where the fuck did they come from? <laughs> and why are they cheering? How are they watching this? But I think the 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 attempt was to make people feel, the viewers feel, that you know this new technology was bringing you images of people who were involved in in the show from remote locations. And if that sounds confusing, it is. 
it was even <laughs> and it was even more confusing to watch the other day. I got to tell you. What did the, uh, I mean, you were there. What did the talent think of this? I mean, it's different than what everybody else was doing. You know, obviously in wrestling, there's lots of paranoia and a lot of negativity and everybody, uh, to use a wrestling term is shitting on everyone else or burying everyone else Were the boys, uh, putting up a, uh, the smile for Vern, but sort of shitting on it behind the scenes. Not really. Now, again, I wasn't one of the boys, so the talent, and again, you keep in mind, a lot of the talent that worked for Vern didn't live in Minneapolis. A lot of them were from Florida or from, you know, Iowa, Wisconsin, you know, different parts around the country. Um, So I didn't see a lot of them, you know, consistently. There was a couple that I did. Pat Tanaka, you know, lived in the area. Paul Diamond lived in the area. There were a few guys, you know, that, you know, Wayne Bloom, Mike Enos, I had known them before I got into wrestling. So there were a few people that I knew that would open up to me a little bit or share the way they were thinking or feeling. But for the most part, from what I remember, everybody was just, you know, grateful to have a gig. You know, they saw what was happening to the AWA. They saw what was happening to the other territories where they used to be able to go work. And those territories were all dying, just like Vern's was. So I think for the you know vast majority of those people, they were just grateful to be able to have a job working anywhere, and there wasn't a lot of bitterness or you know burying anybody or anything like that. You know the the core you know veterans, Baron von Roschke was a school teacher you know outside of Minneapolis in a little town called Prior Lake. Um, Sergeant Slaughter was still there at the time, and you know Sarge is a pro. You know I don't think I've ever heard him say a negative thing about anybody in all the years I've known him. Um, and I think he was particularly loyal to Vern cause he trained there and that's where, you know, Sarge got his start. So I think there was a loyalty to Vern that probably, uh, was more important to, to Sarge than, you know, complaining about anything. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the talent there was young Wayne Bloom, Mike Enos. It was the first gig in wrestling Medusa first gig in wrestling, you know, a lot of guys that were a part of that roster had never really worked anywhere else before. And if they did, they weren't on television, at least with Vern, they were on TV. And by the way, on ESPN, which was a big deal to a lot of them. And they knew that they were getting a lot of good exposure, even if it meant for nothing else, a chance for WWF to see them and maybe get a call up. So there wasn't the level of bitching that you would might expect given the circumstances, because everybody was just, like I said, grateful for their gig, including me. So let's talk about, um, you know, the, the train running off the tracks with you and the AWA. But I guess before we do, I should mention that I skipped over super clash three, which was another one of the big attempts to try to, uh, combine forces to take on Vince McMahon. And it went down in Chicago in December of 1988. And it was a joint show between the former world-class championship wrestling and the AWA and the CWA and the POWW, the powerful women of wrestling. So you've got Memphis and you've got Dallas and you've got the AWA. And I guess this is your first wrestling pay-per-view, right? Yeah. And you know, it went trying to remember the, the, the timeline I think it went Chicago. We were in Nashville. We were in Louisville. 
you know, we're in a couple of different cities. You know, my and this is really funny. I built the set. If you go back and you look at Super Clash, there's a beige set with, you know, some blue and red and whatever color trim on it. You know, my contribution was, and I'm no carpenter, by the way. In fact, farthest thing from it. My wife won't even let me have a hammer. I'm not allowed to touch a hammer. Well, you can now, thanks to Blue Chew. I'm sorry. (laughs) No shit, right? But my job was to build a set that came in three pieces that I could transport from city to city to city. And Garrett was really young at the time. He was like, oh, my gosh, I can't remember how old he was. He was probably only four years old, maybe, if that. And Tana was even younger, Montana, our daughter. So when it came time to go on tour for Super Clash, I, I rented a van and put the the set, which came in three pieces, laid in the back of the van, full-size van. I put a mattress on top of the set. And that's where Garrett stayed because we took him with us. And my job was literally to go and set up this this interview set in all of these markets. So that was that was my – and it was the first time I'd ever been to Nashville. The first time I'd ever been to – I think it was Louisville. It's where we were. Maybe it was Memphis. I can't remember anymore. It all runs together. But, you know, it was it was exciting for us. Lori and I had a blast. We are on the road. I mean, it was like something out of a you know old hippie rock and roll song. You know, we got our four-year-old kids sleeping on a mattress in the back of the van, and we're traveling around the country going to these wrestling events. It was kind of awesome, actually. So on that show, Super Clash, I think the thing that most people remember of that show was the Jerry lawler Kerry Von Erich match where they were going to unify the world-class title and the AWA title. And apparently Kerry got so jacked up beforehand that he forgot. He taped a razor on himself and then scratched his arm and just poured buckets. Uh, what do you remember of that situation? The fallout backstage, there had to be a lot of people running around, you know, not, not something that you wouldn't grow used to in wrestling, but this feels like, <gasps> What do we do? You know, I, I, again, because of the nature of what my job was and what my role was in the company, I, when I was at these events, I was backstage working my ass off. I wasn't even watching what was going on in, in, in the arena. Uh, I wasn't watching on a monitor. I had shit to do. Um, I didn't really hear about any of it until after it was all over. And again, I wasn't, it's not like Vern, you know, I wasn't close to Vern or Greg in, in the sense that, the, you know, they would talk about, you know, what went on or what went wrong or what went right. You know, I just, I wasn't in the proximity of, of that action. And because I was busy, I wasn't even watching it. You know, I remember the first time I saw Kerry Von Eric, I was like, wow, this guy, this is really impressive. It was the first time that I'd seen Jeff Jarrett. I think Eddie Guerrero was on the card. If we're talking about the same pay-per-view series, and I think we are, I think that was one of Eddie Guerrero's first appearances uh, when he was first starting. So there was a lot of first, but I remember seeing a lot of people from these territories that, you know, I, I wasn't familiar with Jerry Lawler. I don't know who the fuck Jerry Lawler was at the time. You know, again, I, I grew up watching the Minneapolis product and, you know, a little bit of the WWF product. So there was a lot of regional talent there that that I had never seen before. You know, you know it was interesting, but I only saw them backstage. I, again, I really wasn't able to watch what was going on inside of the ring. They did another super clash four in April of 90, uh, it only drew 2000 fans, which was actually more than super clash three. Um, I do want to mention about, and I didn't know this until I thumbed through your book again, 
you actually promoted a few towns for the AWA. Uh, carry me through that experience. Yeah, and again, we're we're jumping around here in a timeline, but I think it was probably around 1980. Must have been there for about a year. It was either late 88, possibly early 89. Um, I cleared, I used Mason City as an example early on, talking about syndicating television. I had cleared a, a pretty significant uh, local television station air KIMT, as I told you, with the help of Sonny, by the way, Sonny Ono, because Sonny lived in Mason City, Iowa, and knew the general manager. So that's how that all happened. And Mason City should have been, could have been easily a really good market for the AWA. It was close enough to Minneapolis that, you know, we could we could service the market without having to fly a bunch of people all over the place. If it fit in really nicely to, to Vern's current routing for his live events. So I asked Vern if I could promote a live event there as part of the deal. And, you know, I, I got the network, the network, I got the local television station involved. We found a handful of local sponsors to help with ticket sales and publicity and all that kind of good things. And I staged my first event uh, that I ever promoted in Mason City, Iowa. I had uh, Wahoo McDaniels wrestled Manny Fernandez. I don't know if any of our listeners know who Manny Fernandez was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Raging raging Bull. He was great. Him and Wahoo had a fucking bloodbath. I had never seen anything like it. In the first, right off the bat, between the two of them, I'm guessing they had consumed two and a half cases of beer. And for those of you who don't know, when you have a lot of alcohol in your system, you bleed more for whatever reason. Your blood pressure goes up, it thins your blood, whatever. But when you drink a lot of alcohol and you bleed, you bleed even more profusely than you would otherwise. And these two guys cut each other to death or themselves. And I remember I was at ringside and I think it was timekeeping and I'm looking at what, now I was friends with Wahoo. I got a lot, you know, Wahoo and Ray and I and Greg ended up becoming pretty good friends. And I'm, I'm looking at Wahoo and he's like, you know, he's sitting in the ring. He's like in a sleeper, right? He's sitting on his ass. He's in a sleeper, man. He's got him and he's bleeding like a stuck pig. And I'm watching Wahoo close and he'd like take a deep breath and he'd hold it in, and then he'd squeeze while he's holding his breath. He'd just tighten all of his muscles to make himself bleed more, right? And I'm looking at him, and blood is gushing out of these gashes that he had cut in his own head. And I'm thinking, my God, he's going to bleed to fucking death if he keeps this up. But they had a grueling, just a bloodbath of a match there in Mason City. All right. Marty Gennetti and uh, Shawn Michaels were on my card. They were still the Midnight Rockers. Back at that time, uh, those are the headliners, Manny Fernandez and Wahoo and the Midnight Rockers. And I can't remember. I'm sure Greg Gagne was on the card. Um, Baron Von Roschke was on the card. Larry Zabisco was there because I think I drove down there with Larry uh, from Minneapolis. So uh, it was it was fun. You know, we made a couple bucks. The thing I remember, it had to be late 89 because or early 89 because it was cold as fuck. It must have been like January or February. <clears throat> And this <laughs> this venue we were at was for uh, stock shows, horse shows, cattle shows, you know, sheep shows, whatever. We're in Iowa, right? So these agricultural groups would have these livestock events, 
And this particular venue was built for that. So the only showers were livestock showers. They were outside of the building. And guys had to go in there where you had to wash the pigs and the cows and the horses and shit before you showed them, hopefully to win a blue ribbon or whatever it is they were doing. And that's where the guys had to shower. <laughs> and I remember, oh, man, there's going to be some pissed off guys because they've been working their asses off all night. And then they get to go backstage and take a shower outside in the pig shower. <laughs> uh, uh, got, a so little, got, got a little heat that night. <laughs> I want to bring up your old friend, Diamond Dallas Page. Apparently sometime when you're in the AWA, you, uh, have a bit of a brush up with DDP. Yeah. And you know, I also want us cause we're jumping around in this timeline and there's so many, you know, important things that kind of took place and people that were there at the same time, you know, a name that doesn't often get mentioned and people don't associate with the AWA is Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman came to the AWA the same time I did. Paul Heyman worked with a, a guy by the name of Rob Russon, who was from Florida. And they were the guys who ostensibly were out running around trying to sell shows. Uh, and a lot of the stuff they were doing, they were trying to sell shows as paid events to state fairs and, and things like that. But, yeah, Paul Heyman was working there uh, in promotion the same time I was when I first started, as, as was DDP. And, you know, DDP was in and out. Again, I lived there, so I was in Minneapolis. I was in the office every day. And, of course, I would, you know, by this point, uh, late 89 or whenever it was, I was actually, you know, probably the key person, you know, doing interviews, doing play-by-play. -play. I was working with Ralph to a degree and Lee Marshall, who was there at the time. Um, another great, great guy, by the way, who passed away a few years ago. Um but, you know, in addition to guys like Paul Heyman, you know, DDP was there as well. And DDP would come in and uh, on the days that we were doing the market-specific promos that we were talking about earlier. And I'd see him around and didn't really have too much of an impression of him one way or the other, other than he talked a lot. And he was really loud when he talked. I mean, that's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine when people constantly are trying to talk over the top of people. And he was one of those guys. He didn't mean to do it, by the way. I'm not even sure he realized he was doing it. But it was one of the things that I noticed right away. You know, he was a very loud, um, nonstop talker, constantly promoting himself. And one of the things, because again, and this is the fun part when I look back at the AWA and, and I think about how much I learned or was exposed to that had a really big impression upon me. And most of the stuff I learned, I learned kind of through osmosis. Like Vern and Greg never sat me down like mentors and said, okay, this is how you do this. This is how you do play-by-play. -play. I mean, they worked with me a lot on play-by-play because -play I sucked so horribly at it and they had to work with me to get at least passable. Um, but in that process of either them working with me on my play-by-play or watching Vern direct other talent, you know, once I was able to kind of be back in the inner sanctum of you, if you will, and be around the talent when Vern was directing him, when kayfabe was no longer an issue with Vern with regard to me, just listening, I learned so much from Vern Gagne. Not that he sat me down and taught me, but just listening to him direct other people really gave me a strong sense of what worked and what didn't work. And it's one of the things that I found really odd with regard to Diamond Dallas Page. You know, one of the reasons Vern liked me on camera is because I was short, relatively. I mean, I was 5'10", right? Most of the talent was six foot or taller, with the exception, I think, of maybe Pat Tanaka. And 
Vern was very particular about that. It's one of the reasons I don't think he really liked Larry Nelson. Larry had a great voice, but Larry was like 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, so if he got a six-foot wrestler or a six-one you know, wrestler standing next to him, Larry could actually make the talent look a little bit insignificant. And, and, and Larry was a big guy. I was 5'10 and 170 pounds. So, you know, I looked better standing next to the talent just because I was a smaller person. And, and I remember that being an issue because, you know, I'd be standing there doing a promo with somebody, and I'll use Pat Tanaka as an example. You know, Pat was maybe my height, maybe even a little bit shorter, and Vern would say, okay, now, Eric, you know, spread your legs. So, you know, I'd, I'd be like half doing the splits trying to lose elevation, you know, for the camera so that Pat looked taller than me. So I always knew that, you know, so, relative size and getting the talent over was important from Vern's point of view. And then I'd see DDP coming out. And he was like four inches taller than all the talent he was managing. And I, and I always thought, well, that was a little odd. I, didn't, I never could quite figure out why they kept using DDP because he didn't really fit Vern's typical formula for what a manager should be. He always liked smaller, you know, more diminutive managers so the talent looked bigger and was, was more showcased. Dallas, like I said, was taller than almost everybody he worked with as a manager, and he was louder. He, he, he just automatically stole the tension. Again, I don't think he meant to do it. It was part of who he is. He's still that way today. But he, he really, when it came to the people that he managed, he kind of outshined them quite a bit. Uh, like I said, not intentionally, but it just happened. And it always struck me as odd that Vern had him as a manager when he was so much taller than the talent that he, that he worked with. So chat me up a little bit about... Um your, your dust up with DDP because uh, this, you guys had a bit of a, um, a scuffle. Is that the right word to say? Yeah. Um, again, it was in Rochester, Minnesota. It was, in, it was in the wintertime. I think it was right before Christmas. Uh, we were taping our show at the Rochester Mayo civic auditorium. As I said earlier, it was our big ESPN taping. And earlier that year I had put together a sponsorship and it was the biggest sponsorship Vern had ever experienced. By the way, I got a hundred thousand dollars from G Heilman brewing company in La Crosse, Wisconsin. They're no longer there. They were purchased a long time ago, but G Heilman brewing company at one point had 31 different brands of beer. Like hams was a Heilman brewing company beer. Schmidt Lone star was a Heilman brewing company beer. So there's this big brewery that would brew all these different beers and then they would ship them off to individual markets. And people in those markets thought, for example, they thought Lone Star was a Texas beer. It wasn't. It was brewed in La Crosse, Wisconsin. It just looked like a Texas beer. So this brewing company happened to have like two or three major brands in Minneapolis. And I had put together a sponsorship uh, with them, and they sponsored a, a football, a, a touch football, celebrity touch football tournament, or not tournament, but a game at the Hubert H. Humphrey, Humphrey Metrodome, no less, on a Friday night that drew like eight or 9,000 people paid. And a good portion of the proceeds went to a, a place called the Courage Center, which was a, a home for kids with disabilities and things like that. Um, I worked with Tom Bernard, who is, you know, Tom Bernard is one of the big voices over on Westwood One to this day, one of the top DJs in the country at the, t at the time, and a big, big sports guy. So Tom and I started working together, and we started recruiting a lot of local celebrity athletes um, to, you know, to play on this, you know, 
NFL, you know, veterans versus the AWA all-star roster. And like I said, we, we drew a hell of an audience at the, at the Metro Dome in Minneapolis for a touch football game. It was great. It was really a blast. We had Chuck Foreman. He was a running back for the Minnesota Vikings at one time. Dave Casper, who was, I think, a lineman for the Oakland Raiders, you know, played. Mike Malarkey of the Minnesota Vikings played. That's how I became, you know, friends with Mike. He went on to become, you know, an NFL coach uh, and a pro bowler. Um, just it, it was a great experience. And I maintained my relationship with Heilman Brewing Company. And I had put on, you know, we had this event going on in Rochester and I got a local sponsorship between the brewing company and a local bar. So we wanted to bring a lot of the wrestlers to the local bar to meet with the fans and it got a lot of radio promotion and that kind of thing. So it was a, it was an organized event. It wasn't like we were just going to show up at a bar and all have a bunch of beers after the show. This was part of the promotion and it was sponsored. And, you know, we had certain obligations and things that we had to live up to in order to fulfill it. So I, that's why I was there, and Lori was with me. And we got to this bar, and everything was going pretty well. After about an hour, hour and a half, you know, the boys were all there, and, you know, the fans were there, and everybody's drinking pretty heavily. And I looked over in a corner, and I don't remember exactly what Paige was doing, but he was very loud, he was very obnoxious, and he was borderline rude to either a waitress or a waiter or somebody that was serving him. You know, not not – Horrible, but just not treating them the way as their guests we should we should be treating them. And I remember I looked at Laurie and I just and, and he'd been wearing on me quite a bit all night because he was so loud because he was so brash, was, obnoxious is probably the best way to say it. Um, it it just been building up on me all night long, you know. And when I saw him you know, treating the staff of this, you know, bar the way he did, or at least the way I perceived him to be treating them. I was it, you know, I just, cause it reflected badly on me. That's the way I, I, I personalize it. That oh, this guy's with the AWA. He's one of our talent and he's acting like a jackass at the sponsored event that I put together. So it, it became my issue. I personalized it, right. Which I shouldn't have done, but I did. So I went and I confronted him. You know, and it got really, it got really heated between that. And I had been drinking. I'm not going <laughs> to deny that. Um, I had had probably six or eight beers of me by that time. And I was much younger then. And my, my brain processed things differently than it does today. And as our argument became more escalated, I didn't want to get, I didn't want to fight him in the bar. So I said, fuck it. I'll, let's go outside. You know, I, I wanted to, I want to take him outside and kick his ass. So he said, great, let's go. So he headed for the door. I walked over to um, the table that was not too far from the door because Lori was sitting there. And I said, I'll be back in about five minutes. She goes, and she knew. She saw me with him. She goes, what are you going to do? I said, I'm just going to kick his ass. But I want to do it outside in the parking lot. I don't want to do it in here. So I went out. By the time I got out the door, only about 30 seconds behind Dallas, I see him get in the car and the car takes off. I thought, well, that chicken shit, that's bullshit. I was kind of geared up for it, at least in my mind. So I went back in and, you know, relaxed and had a couple more beers and closed up, you know, the night and took care of everybody and made sure everything was the way it was supposed to be when we left. And Lori and I got back to the hotel and got in the elevator, went up to our room. It was on the third floor, whatever it was. And sure enough, as soon as the doors opened, there's – DDP with five or six other guys, wrestlers, right? 
and bah, 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 you know, we started going at it again verbally. And then it's, you know, it's a pull apart, right? Everybody kept us from, from getting to each other. And then they got Paige to go to his room. Lori, you know, got me to go to my room. And of course I sat in my room and stewed all night was pissed off. My adrenaline was, you know, didn't quit pumping until about four o'clock in the morning. And then, you know, I woke up the next morning about eight or nine. I went, Oh God, what did I do? Oh, uh, I realized, you know, that I, I didn't handle the situation at all as well as I should have in the bar. You know, I should have never confronted them the way I did in a bar in front of a bunch of people. That was a mistake on my part. I should have never challenge him to a fight outside the bar. I knew when I woke up in the morning, if Vern found out any of this, you know what I did, forget about what Paige did. I knew if Vern found out the way I handled myself, um, it might be the end of it for me. I knew, you know, there, there was a good possibility he might just fire me. So I was, you know, I was worried about that. I was embarrassed because even, you know, I was still pretty young at the time, 34 years old, but I still knew I didn't handle myself the way I should have. So I, I thought, fuck, what do I do? I thought, you know what? I just got to apologize. I just got to be man and go say I'm sorry. So I found out what room he was in. I go knock on Paige's door. He opens up the door and he kind of look, looks at me. Literally, I'm, I'm sure I woke him up out of bed. He looked like 100 miles of bad road. And he looked at me and I said, hey, I just want to let you know, man, I, I'm really sorry. I fucked up last night. Should have never gone down like that. And he just kind of looked at me and he you know, he smiled like, yeah, you're right. We were both kind of idiots. Stuck out his hand, shook my hand, and that was the end of it. That, that, there was nothing more to it than that, really. Well, well, um, you know, it's good that you can look back and, and see how silly some of that is. Let's talk a little bit about the, um, the silliness of this Team Challenge series one more time that's on the Hidden Gems that's really – uh, the catalyst for us talking about the AWA, you guys tried to do something with ladies that I was not prepared for. Uh, this was, uh, scantily clad women in a way that they were not being presented in WCW or the WWF, uh, knowing what I know about you, uh, you probably thought that was a pretty roll tight idea. What'd you think? Again, I had forgotten all about it till I saw it the other day when, when I watched the Team Challenge series on the WWE Network, and I was shocked. Now, that was produced. That wasn't produced in the soundstage where we were at. Somebody else produced that in, in a different location. So I didn't see it being produced. And when I watched it the other day, I'm looking at Now, this is, what, 1989. These chicks are wearing thongs. Yeah. I mean, I mean... It, they look like a stage full of hookers and, 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 and dressed for being a hooker for the most part, they were all in their lingerie and it was a combination of like boxing and wrestling. And it was just the weirdest thing to see. And, and again, to think back that this is 1989 right? and we're watching, you know, hot chicks and thongs rolling around the ring. It's like, wow, this is some pretty progressive shit. I don't know what they were thinking. You know, that's not an Eminem Mars kind of a product, but, you know, it was kind of fun to watch. And I really encourage people to go back and watch it. It's really funny. You know, for me, again, I to see myself on camera from 1989, I don't know about you, Conrad, but I laughed my ass off. I, I just, it it's so odd to 
you know, you go back and you look what people are wearing and the way they dressed and particularly with these women, check out that eighties hair. It's like a parody of glow. Well, but I I think there was even more skin on this than glow. And that's what I'm wondering. Like Vern's got to be thinking, okay, I can't get fans out to buy tickets. I can't get them to the arena. So I'm going to do this and reduce my overhead. I don't know what they really want to see, but I know what dudes want to see. This is, I don't know. I don't know if that was Vern or I'm guessing Greg probably had a hand. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. That is tremendous. I want to mention in the book that you wrote several years ago, controversy creates cash, which people still talk to us about on Twitter. You wrote towards the end of 1989 and the beginning of 90, I put together my first video from beginning to end. It was a tape for the home video market called the best of the eighties. And it was kind of a greatest hits of AWA wrestling events. Vern had a tremendous wrestling library at the time. And of course now it's on the WWE. Um, you would write, when you look back at that library and you look back at the history of the AWA, you see some of the great names in our business during the late eighties and early nineties had really come through Ganya's territory, Hulk Hogan, Jesse Ventura, Jim Brunzel, Gene Okerlund, Scott Hall, Shawn Michaels, and Kurt Henning were just a few of the many wrestlers who worked for Vince. Tell us about that, uh, that home video process. Tony Schiavone over on what happened when has said that putting together the Coliseum home videos for the WWF is probably the most fun thing he's done in wrestling. I, and I can understand that for, for me in particular, it was really, and again, it's the process, you know, I'll go back to the learning process. Here and again, you know, so much, and this is why to this day I'm so loyal and grateful to Vern and, and to Greg, even though Greg and I kind of rub each other wrong every once in a while, to even to this day. But um, when I see a picture of Vern, you know, I was in the Minneapolis airport the other day on my way to from one terminal to another, and, and in between, you're on the, the moving sidewalk going between terminals, and there's one whole wall that's about a quarter of a mile long. And the airport is decorated with a bunch of, you know, Minnesota sports memorabilia, you know, going back to whenever. And there's a big picture of Vern Gagne on the wall as you, as you're on the moving sidewalk. And I, the first time I saw that, which was only probably six months or eight months ago, I got a tear in my eye, you know, because Vern, you know, and it wasn't just Vern, Vern was a part of it, obviously, but you know, Mike Shields and Greg, you know, I mean, for me to get the opportunity that I got back in 1987, it was unheard of. It was, it was because of coincidence. It was because Vern didn't really have the the money to hire anybody that was really talented or qualified, which is the only reason I got the job. And I, and I know that I knew that then, and I, I certainly know it now, but as a result of it, I learned and got to experience so much, you know, because Vern didn't have the money to hire talented people or experienced people, I got to learn on the job. I got to learn how to run a camera. I got to learn how to edit. I got to learn how to promote live events. I got to learn how to be a talent. I got to watch Vern, who to this day, if you you know, if you really if you can find people that don't have a chip on their shoulder or whose egos aren't so big that, you know, they demand that you know they they only give themselves credit for things. Vern taught. Hulk, you and I have, you know, gotten into this before. Yeah, Vern taught Hulk Hogan how to be Hulk Hogan. 
not Vince McMahon, not even Vince Senior. It was it was Vern Gagne who taught Hulk how to become Hulk Hogan, and and I watched Vern direct and and work with so many. I watched him. I used to watch him bitch out Jesse Ventura, you know, and and trying to direct Jesse and and Kurt Hennig and so many of the great names. That it was for me. All it was was a learning experience, and in 1989. You know, all the top talent was gone. It was obvious Vern needed bread. They were looking for every way possible to try to generate revenue. And I'm back in the production area, and I'm looking at all these old videotapes. And at the time, again, this is 1989, nobody really understood the value or could have possibly foreseen the value of a videotape library. In the context of the times, once you shot that tape, and once those edit market promos were inserted and they were delivered to a local television station, that tape wasn't worth the shipping it would would cost to ship it back. It was it, it wasn't what they call in the industry evergreen. It had no long term value. It was a short term proposition. So and Vern had all of these tapes, all the masters from all the stuff that he had done throughout the eighties, just sitting in this room. And some of it was corroded. Some of it, you know, it wasn't taken care of. Nobody made any effort to preserve it in any way, shape or form. So it was subjected, you know, subjected to humidity and heat and cold and all moisture and all whatever. Some of it was good. Some of it you couldn't use anymore. But I remember I was back in the edit bay and I'm surrounded, you know, by, you know, three walls that are you know, floor to ceiling high with all these old tapes. And I thought, wow, all of the, so many of the people that are part of these tapes have gone on to the WWF. Some of them have retired. Some of them have passed away. And I thought, wouldn't it be really cool if I could come up with a home video that's the best of the 80s showcasing all of that great talent? So I, I asked for permission to do it. I said, can I, can I produce this tape? If I can, and the caveat was I had to find somebody to buy it a distributor. And I, I got a conditional approval to do that. So I found a company in Toronto called famous players. And I don't even know that they still exist. I think through a you know series of acquisitions, they've gone on to become something else. But at the time, famous players was one of the largest, I think it was a theater chain as well as a movie distribution company. So they not only had their own theater chain, they would also distribute m movies and home videos and other projects for other people that you know weren't theatrical, so to speak. So I went to Famous Players and met with a guy by the name Andy. I can't remember Andy's last name. And it's, you know, I had I had a paper pitch. I laid everything out, including a lot of the names that were going to be involved. And he agreed to purchase it if I produced it. I think the purchase price was like 185000 or 150000 but it was found money. It cost nothing for us to produce it. You know, I mean, they were already paying me. Joe Chupek was there, you know, working with me. So it, it wasn't like we had, you know, any incremental cost to produce this videotape. And we had all the rights to it. So we went back and, you know, we produced this tape. I was the – I wish I could get my hands on it. I really wish I could get my hands on it. I don't think the WWE has it. Uh, it didn't come with the library acquisition from AWA. I think probably because famous players ended up owning the copyright is my guess because I would love to see it. I put a lot of time and a lot of work into it. And one of the things, you know, somebody said, where did you learn? At what point do you think you learned the most about the business in general? For me, it was editing those tapes together. 
And I'm going to give you one example. I had the ability, you know, I saw some of the early, you know, when, when Road Warriors first got to AWA, when Road Warriors became hot in AWA, and I watched them in the way they did their interviews, not so much their matches, but their interviews is what I paid the most attention to. Um, guys like Nick Bockwinkle, guys like Wahoo McDaniel, Ray Stevens, you know, even Greg Gagne. Greg did great interviews. People knock Greg all the time. But even if you watch, go back and watch the Team Challenge series, um, Greg's commentary uh, on the Team Challenge series, especially given what it was, he was really, really good at commentary. He was believable. Um, you know, his ring work, you know, I think technically he was really good, but he was Greg's kid and he didn't look like a wrestler, or he was Vern's kid and he didn't look like a wrestler. So he got a lot of heat just by the fact that he was a promoter's son. That's a burden, right? And when you're not jacked up like everybody, you're not, you know, he wasn't doing steroids. He wasn't jacked up like a lot of guys were at the time. He looked kind of skinny and scrawny compared to them. So we got a lot, he even got even more heat. But if you listen to Greg Gagne on commentary, he's really, really quite good. But Going back, you know, I watched the Road Warriors, and one of the things that I remember noticing really early on during that time was what happened with the Road Warriors because they would now they were heels at the time. They would go out, and this was completely the opposite of everybody else. They would go out and they would say, "We're going to kick your ass," be cutting a promo on the baby faces, whoever they were up against, right? As the heels, they would tell the baby faces they were going to kick their ass, and then they would go out in the match, and they would kick their ass as heels. And I remember thinking to myself, well, this is odd because it's not the formula that I see in the rest of these promos where heels would go out and they would – you know, basically lie, cheat, and steal, right, as characters in their promos. And they would maintain that same characteristic inside of their match. They would, you know, even if they won, they won by – lying, cheating, or stealing. Whereas the war, road warriors would go out and it would tell everybody that the baddest fuckers on the planet and they were going to go out and kill their opponents, and they did. And I remember early on noticing that that conflict in the formula. How do, how do guys become heels if they go out and do exactly what they say they're going to do? And they look like the road warriors. And it was the first time that, you know, psychology – you know, nobody talked about psychology to me back in 89. You know, I wasn't that – nobody smarted me up to that level. But I remember through that edit process because I, I watched, God, hundreds and hundreds of hours of videotape in order to produce this hour and 20-minute tape or whatever it was. I had to go through probably 500 hours of content to, to determine what we wanted to use and have it make sense. And I remember – thinking to myself because of the watching the road warriors that that formula if you're a heel and telling the truth and looking like probably everybody out there subconsciously every male wishes they could look like that and then to go out and do exactly what you said you're going to do is not a healthy formula for a heel and that was kind of a big aha moment for me in the process i was by myself you know, Joe Chupek might have been in there with me, but he was a director. He wasn't a wrestling guy. But that was, you know, the light bulb really went off in my head. And then as I watched guys like Nick Bockwinkle, who to this day I think Nick Bockwinkle probably in the top five, top ten for sure, maybe even in the top five of all of the best promos in the business in history, 
he was really, really good. I mean, really good as a heel. Um, and, and, and as a heel character in the ring, even more so. His, his in-ring performance enhanced his promos and vice versa. And I remember looking at the difference between a guy like Nick Bachman. And I'm not shitting on the Road Warriors, by the way. They made a fortune. They kind of changed the business. And this is what it was about. You know, we talk about today, you know, if, if, not you and I on the show, but if you read the, you know, the, what's going on online or in social media, you know, people are bitching about the product. And even, you know, people who see me at, at conventions or who come to our shows like they did at Jimmy's Famous Seafoods or, or at Zanies in Nashville – those people are going to tell you what they want to, what they think you want to hear, right? They're there because, you know, of my involvement in the industry back in the mid nineties and late nineties. So that's their focus. That's what they're there to talk about. And they talk about how much better wrestling was back in that era and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it, it's been that way since the beginning of time. You know, when I started in wrestling in, in the late eighties, all I ever heard from the older guys like Wahoo and Ray and, and Nick Bockwinkle and, and Vern, obviously, and Greg, you know, was, oh, man, back in the 60s and the 70s, wrestling was so much better. These young guys, they just, all they do is go out there and try to do flips and fly. And, you know, they're doing too much. They need to slow down. <laughs> it's, it's the same shit. And I got to WCW, and I heard the same shit from guys like Dusty and Ole and, and you know, people who had been, you know, Bill Watts for sure. I got an earful of it constantly from Bill Watts. You know, the, the guys who were older in that era – who had lived through the 70s, 60s and the 70s, and even a little bit of the 80s, you know, were looking at the young guys coming up in the 90s and busting their balls because they didn't get it. And it's still going on today. But I remember in 1989 looking at the difference between guys like Mad Dog Vashon and, and certainly Nick Bockwinkle, Bobby Heenan, you know, and some of his work that I, that I captured uh, Ray Stevens, even, you know, and, you know, Dusty Rose, a lot of the guys that came through that territory that were really good at promos, they were, ex- their characters in the ring were, were part of that promo. The anomaly was the Road Warriors. And what they should have done, I think, you know, in, in a traditional formula, looking the way they looked at the time, they were at their physical peak. They go out and they cut these badass promos talk, talking about how they're going to go out and destroy their competition. If they would have, cheated and been cowards along the way, it would have fit the formula. But in their case, and they were the only ones that did it. And maybe that was, you know, maybe that was the innovation that catapulted them, you know, onto, to who they became down the road. But that was really a learning experience and an eye opening one for me. Talk about a learning experience. Let's talk about uh, what you wrote in your book. Vern's business was sinking lower and lower. My own finances were being stretched as paychecks began coming later and later and finally stopped. If I stayed at AWA and things continued the way they were, it would just be a matter of time before I were bankrupt. Uh, I- I'm curious, you know, we've, we've heard you sort of raz Paul Heyman about slow paying guys or not paying guys in ECW, but yet you're loyal to Vern, even though it happened to you there. How do you reconcile that? Because Vern never lied to me. <clears throat> Vern never told me the check was in the mail or that FedEx must have lost it or whatever other excuses that I've heard <laughs> guys, you know, get from Paul back back when, you know, Paul was having a hard time paying talent. Vern told me the truth right up front. She kid. 
I, I hopefully we'll you know we'll have the money in a month or two or three. But right now I don't have the money, and if you need to go, you need to go, and I understand it. I was fr- I was pretty tight with Vern by that point. You know, we we not only worked together, I not only admired and looked up to him and was loyal to him for giving me the opportunity that he gave me, but we were genuinely friends. Not just with Vern, I was friends with his daughter Donna. Um, I was you know friends with Greg. We hunted together. You know, there was probably six or eight hunting trips that we took together. It had nothing to do with wrestling. Me and Wahoo and Greg and uh, Ray Stevens would would go hunting at a private, you know, hunting club that Vern belonged to. We we went on, you know, extended trips, you know, out of town. Um, so my my loyalty was twofold, you know, based on the relationship. Number one, and, and I'm a pretty loyal person just by nature. That's probably number one. Um, unless somebody gives me a reason to not be loyal and not trust them, um, inherently I am pretty pretty loyal to people, um, particularly someone like Vern and particularly somebody that was a friend. And, and like I said, Vern didn't lie to me. He didn't cover it up. He didn't tell me the check was in the mail. He was straight up up front with me. I, it was, and, and I appreciated that, and it allowed me to make a decision. And it was a tough decision because I knew, you know, my kids were really young, 1989, 1990, 1990, Garrett was only five or six. Montana was four or five. I was, I was living in a house that had propane heat at the time and I couldn't afford to put the propane in the propane tank to heat the house. And when you live in Minnesota in December and January, when it gets down to 20 and 30 degrees below zero and you're living in a shitty little house that isn't insulated that well to begin with. And you're you're heating your kid's room with kerosene heaters because that's the only fuel you can afford to buy. Um, and your house smells like kerosene. And it's inherently dangerous, by the way, because of the fumes and the, the risk of fire. But that's the only choice I had. But it was my choice. And, and Vern, like I said, was straight up, you know, honest about it. I knew that if I quit, I could have gone and gotten a sales job and been making 30 or 40 grand a year. That wasn't hard for me to, to do. Uh, and, and again, in, in the late 80s, that was decent money. It wasn't great money, but it was decent. It was enough for my family and I to probably live better than we had been living at that point. I was making, like I said, 600 bucks a week working for Vern. I was making 30 grand a year. I could have easily gone and made $45,000 a year selling a car somewhere. But I stuck it out because I knew, inherently I knew. It's not like I, I rationalized it or spent weeks, you know, debating it in my own mind, but inherently or intuitively, I knew that if I got out of the wrestling business, if I quit working for Vern and just went back into sales, whether it was with a food processor or, you know, selling insulation or whatever it was, um, I'd never get back in. Right. And I knew that. And I, I made up my mind that I wanted to, to stick it out and survive as long as I possibly could. And that's, you know, and it wasn't just my decision. Lori was supportive of that as well. So that's the difference. He never lied to me about it. So in June or July of 90, the WWF advertises that they are looking for an announcer and, uh, you get an interview and we'll talk about that another time. Did you give, uh, Vern a heads up that you were going? I asked Vern for permission. Okay. Because I knew it would likely he'd hear about it somehow, some way, especially if I was fortunate enough to get the job and I didn't want to blindside him. 
Um, I didn't want him to hear about it from somebody else. Like I said, he was, he's a friend and, and I'm, I'm ridiculous. I'm loyal to a fault to people who I consider friends. And that's the way I looked at Vernon Gregg at the time. So I, I didn't give him a heads up. I asked permission. So one of the things that I found ironic about this whole interview process is of course, famously, you don't get the job, but just a handful of years later, you're running his competition, which is just unbelievable. I guess I should mention, uh, the AWA becomes inactive in the fall of 1990. I believe the last TV taping happened in August. Uh, Larry Zabisco, who was the AWA world champion and an in-law of Vern, uh, was signing with WCW. And as his last official act, Vern stripped Zabisco of the AWA world title in December of 90. And in 1991, Ganya officially filed for bankruptcy which was the end of the legendary AWA. What do you remember about the end? I was, I was pretty devastated, uh, for Vern, you know, what, what a lot of people don't know and doesn't really get, it doesn't get discussed because it's not wrestling related necessarily, but Vern was, as I said earlier, he was funding AWA. And, and Vern was stubborn. You know, I don't want to make him sound like he was perfect by any stretch. He was short-tempered. Um, he was stubborn, uh, really stubborn. Um, and, but he believed in it. He believed in AW. He believed he could fix it. He believed, you know, and Vern also had a lot of great relationships. There were, there was a time or two, I remember in 88 and even 89, when Vern came very, very close to doing a deal with Tribune Broadcasting, which would have made him really competitive, by the way. Uh, he was friends with, and I believe the family owned Tribune or a good portion of Tribune. Uh, Eddie Einhorn was the guy's name, if I recall it correctly. And, you know, he was, Eddie was, was Vern's age. They kind of came up together. Um, through television and, and, you know, in the fifties and the sixties and the seventies and Vern came really close once or twice with, with doing a deal with, with Eddie Einhorn and, and, and Tribune broadcasting, which it would have changed everything. But Vern to my point or a point I wanted to make here was what people don't know is that, you know, yeah, Vern was funding AWA, but he was also fighting the state of Minnesota. The the piece of property that and when Vern was making you know a fortune, he was one of the most successful territories in the country financially. Um, he made a lot of money, and he put all of that money into this home that he had on Lake Minnetonka that I described. To you. It was a good 40, 50, 60 acres, whatever it was, but it was it was a huge piece of property. They had horses, Donna, Ghani, and I think Kathy had you know their own horses and they had a big beautiful horse barn and I mean it was like something out of a you know, home and gardens type magazine and the state of Minnesota while Vern now, this is now in the late eighties while Vern is using the equity in that piece of property to help fund AWA and, and to try to do the deals that he came so very close to doing, um, the state of Minnesota through eminent domain, which I know Conrad, you, you know all about eminent domain, but sure. for people that don't, it gives the state the ability to go, hey, um, Conrad Thompson, you've got a beautiful home here, 
And I know you've got a lot of money wrapped in it. You, you hope to retire here and your kids grew up here and blah, 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 blah. But you know what? We really want to put a parking lot there because we think it'll be better for the community. So I know the market value may be, you know, I don't know, a million dollars for your home, but we're going to give you $250,000 and it's take it or leave it. And if you don't take it, we're going to take your property anyway. That's eminent domain. It's a fucked up law, by the way. And the state of Minnesota was suing and Vern was, <laughs> Vern was fighting that lawsuit. Imagine fighting a lawsuit against the state of Minnesota. By the way, you got to pay for that. So while Vern was funding AWA, he was also funding a lawsuit trying to hold on to the home that he wanted to retire in. And the state of Minnesota wanted that piece of property because they wanted it for a public park because it was a big chunk of property. It was in a beautiful area and it was right on the lake and the lake was being overdeveloped and the state of Minnesota wanted to really get their hands on this, you know, probably one of the largest single chunks of property on the lake at that time. And they were offering them like two and a half million for it. And it was worth upwards of 10 easily on the market. But since it was tied up in eminent domain, Vern couldn't sell it. Nobody would buy a house that the state of Minnesota was trying to take. Um, so he was funding a lawsuit, funding AWA. And finally, when he lost his lawsuit with the state of Minnesota, he had no more ability uh, to, to draw off the equity. He had to take the deal that they offered him, and that was, that was really it for him. It collapsed him. Let's talk about uh, how important he was to your life. I feel like, you know, we, we've talked a lot about what a big influence he was and how helpful he was in, in a lot of guys' lives in wrestling. But just you personally, how important do you think he was? <clears throat> Gonna give me a beat here. I still get weepy, believe it or not. After all this time, I'm again. I guess it's because of the way I was brought up. I look at my kids today. I have two great kids. Been very fortunate. I have two kids. I'm so proud of today. And part of the reason that those kids, my kids, turned out as well as it is, obviously because of the relationship they have with, you know, Lori and I, but the experience that they've had as kids, the things that they've learned, the things that they've seen, not to be, you know, a glutton about it, but the places they've been able to go as a result of my, you know, my work in professional wrestling has helped make them really healthy, well-rounded kids. And I'm so grateful for that. And when I think back, and this is why, you know, being grateful is an important, I think, quality for all of us, because it's easy, especially when you're younger, it's easy to give yourself credit for all of the things that you've accomplished. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you should be proud of the things that you've done and the things you've accomplished. But when you're really, when I'm really honest with myself about all of the things that I've achieved it's not all been about my talent or my instincts or my hard work. A lot of it has been just opportunities people have given me sometimes for no good fucking reason. And when I look at everything I've done and what I have, and I don't mean financially because I've gone through ups and downs financially. I still am, but my life as a whole 
wouldn't be what it is today. The memories I have, the relationships I have. I'm still good friends with Masa Saido's wife over in Japan. You know, there's just – when I look at what I've achieved on a non-financial level, I'm so grateful for it all. None of it would have been possible if Vern Gagne wouldn't have given me the opportunity to come to work for him. If Vern Gagne would have said, sure, kid, bring your silly-ass fucking game in here. Let's see if we can make a buck together. He didn't say that, but you know what I mean. If 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 none of that would have happened, I don't know where I would have ended up. I, I, I know – I'm pretty sure – I wouldn't have been able to give my kids the opportunity to experience what they've experienced. And that to me is the most important thing in my world. And it all started with Vern Gagne and Mike Shields. That's where it started. And I'll never, ever, ever forget that. Well, and we won't forget you taking a few minutes to uh, get in your way back machine and talk about the AWA. Well, that's it. We're out of time today. He is at E Bischoff on Twitter. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. Be sure to vote in our next poll and see everything going on with the show by following us on Twitter at 83 weeks. We'll be back right here next week on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.